Welcome to Hard Talk. I'm Stephen Sacker. Today, I'm in rural northern Germany. Stable, prosperous, 21st century Germany. But I'm here to talk about the past and its relationship to the present. My guest is the writer, journalist and son, Nicholas Frank. Now, his father was appointed by Hitler to be the governor-general of Nazi-occupied Poland. He was intimately involved in the murder of millions of people. So how has this German son dealt with the terrible crimes of his father? Nicholas, I'm wondering why you have chosen to make your life in the very far north of Germany. Is it because you wanted to get as far away as possible from your family background in Bavaria? No, I still love Bavaria. And every year we are about many weeks in Bavaria, in the same village where I grew up. But it was my profession as a journalist and Stern magazine, which I worked for 23 years, was based in Hamburg. Mm. So I had to lure my wife. She was a judge in Munich because she is a big gardener to a house with a big garden. And it was a good idea. And so we live here since 33 years. This place where you now live is extraordinarily peaceful. Yes, Would is. you say it has helped bring you some sort of peace of mind? Uh, no, no, I don't think that it depends on the country I'm living in. It's in myself uh, that I found peace because I acknowledged what my, what my father has done. That's, I think, it's the first, first and most important step. Thinking of my father is thinking at first about his victims. Uh, there's no German around who has not certain pictures of corpses in his mind. And uh, those pictures are, which always reminds me of my father, what he did. And especially when I look at him, that's... Uh, <laughs> the leather coat of my father. So it's the scapegoat. In German you call it Vogelscheuche. And this scapegoat, it's the most expensive one in Germany, I would say, because I bought it from a soldier's heir who had stolen it. In the, the, coat, Bavaria, the coat, yes. And uh, so one of the heirs gave me a call whether I'm interested in this coat of my father, and I said yes. And he wanted, she wanted $500, and I paid it, and well, I got you, it. You mean this old military great coat, leather coat, is actually your father's old coat? Yes. What I have to admit, since this scapegoat is standing here, I've got a stronger connection to my father. It's very strange. And always when I'm sitting in our living room, looking at him and saying, this you have earned, dear father. Being a scapegoat in the end, that's your fault. Nicholas, I want to 
hear more about your family history, dig deeper into your relationship with your father, but I also want to get out of this cold North German wind, so why, <laughs> don't, good we, idea. why don't we head back into your okay, house? Okay, that's great. Bye-bye. Escape <laughs> <Okay>, crow. <laughs> Nicholas Frank, welcome to Hard Talk. Thank you. Do you feel that you have some sort of a, a duty to your country to speak about your past? I think so, yes. I think I have the duty. Because by chance I was born in this family and I could tell the people uh, how to behave with parents like I had. When do you think you first began to feel that you must speak out as, as volubly, as publicly as possible about your father and about your feelings toward your father? It was a, a growing wish because of the silence in Germany. Um, the families, all the families of my friends, everybody was silent and they didn't talk about the past. And this um, I couldn't endure because um, I always wanted to know how a society behaves if it changes to a uh, dictatorship. And I always were feeling that Germany is still prepared to do this. And so I looked uh, closer to all the families and friends and acquaintances. And I found out that still is something in the German people which uh, makes me fear them. Fear? Your own country and your own people? Yes, I would say so. Well, I, I want to pick up on that because that's a pretty remarkable thing to feel and to say. But before I get to your thoughts on the country, on Germany, I do want to stay with the personal because it seems to me in that period you're talking about after the end of the war and for decades afterwards, many families of senior top Nazis still felt a sort of a residual, a, a vestigial loyalty to their kin, to their blood. Did you never feel that? No, uh, especially not uh, for my father. Uh, it's slightly different with my mother because I have uh, experienced my mother as a really fighting mother for us. But she, she was a Nazi too. She wasn't a Nazi. Was she, she was not? never a member of the Nazi party, nor was she a Nazi. She hated all this screaming of her husband when he was delivering a speech. And uh, she hated uh, this kind of stuff. But she very much liked the luxury. Uh, she found through the position of her husband uh, she was a very cold and inhuman woman. In terms of your father, I want you just to look at this picture with me of your father in his Nazi uniform. When you look 
at him. Do you feel anger, rage? What do you feel? Anger and rage. Anger and rage. And the next thing was I always, the word, which for me is always sticking to my father is, what a coward you were. What a coward. And that feeling isn't just a memory feeling. It's something that's very alive in you. It's very alive. It's very alive. It is still as if he is sitting on your place. I despise him, really. He died, he was hung after the Nuremberg trials when you were seven years old. So I'm just wondering how strong your memories can be of him when you were in that castle in Krakow, his headquarters, the headquarters of the Nazi occupation force in Poland. Do you really remember what it was like and what he was like? No. I didn't remember what kind of profession he had. We, I only knew Poland was ours, and the castle was ours, and the other castle outside of Krakow was ours, and the big Mercedes was ours, and the SS guards were our properties. And uh, It was we, almost like you were part of the royal family. Yes, it was, it was. And this I enjoyed very much, like my mother. I enjoyed it. What about the truth of the unimaginable crimes and cruelty? As a young boy, growing up from the age of, well, from being a baby to, to being six years old, did you have any awareness of what was happening? No. The only thing was when I accompanied my mother into the Krakow ghettos when she was shopping. It was one visit, maybe there were more, but I remember especially this one visit. Uh, there was a lot of people, all, everybody was looking very sadly. And uh, this was the only memory, but I didn't know where it was. Later on, I talked to my nanny, my beloved Hilde, and I told her the flashes of my memory. And she told me it was the Krakow ghetto. And we were together, and I remembered her sitting beside me in the car. We now associate your father with the Holocaust. He was instrumental in delivering millions of Jews and others to their deaths, and he seemed to be enthusiastic about it. Was there any way that anybody else in your family could have known exactly what was happening? Exactly knew it um, his wife, my mother. Your mother knew. knew. Exactly. You have to imagine this Wawel castle in Krakow. It was really like a kingdom. Everybody knows each other. Yes? Everybody talked to each other. They knew exactly what was going on in the death camps and what was going on day by day. You have said, I think, that you have no doubt that your father loved Hitler more than yes. he loved his own family. Yes, that's for sure. And you use that word love advisedly. You really mean really <laughs> love. love. Really love. It has something of a homosexual kind of love. 
Tell me about your last encounter with your father. He, of course, was tried at Nuremberg as one of the top Nazis to be held responsible for the genocide, for the war crimes, crimes against humanity. But before he was executed, you saw him one last time. Yes. Sitting on my mother's lap, it was a big room. On the other side, I will always remember, was Göring behind this window with small holes to understand each other. And I was sitting on my mother's lap and knowing that will be my last visit uh, to him. And um, he smiled at me and laughed. And said, Do you have a picture? of him at Nuremberg. Here it is during his... This is during the trial? During the trial, yes. So he smiled and what did he say to you? What was his last message to you? The last message was to me uh, a big lie. I knew that he will be hanged and he told me, Hi, Nicky, which was my short name in the family. Hi, Nicky, we will soon celebrate Christmas at our house at Schliersee and uh, I was really thinking why is he lying? Why is he lying? Let's move forward and think about the impact of all of this on your family. You have siblings, two older sisters and I think two brothers. Yes. Could you in the years that followed talk to them, share feelings with them actually have the same sort of understanding of what your father had done and what it meant to you as a family? Also, I was living in a boarding school uh, till I finished, uh, till I finished school. Um, we were separated in different places, but whenever we came together after a short high, we were discussing our father. And then very slowly I found out that a very different approaches to the to my father especially and this separated me because your sisters what they they three of my sisters defended my father as an innocent victim of hitler himmler and the justice of nuremberg i would say it cost them their lives they died very early my next older sister brigitte called kitty she already wrote in her diary when she was about 16, 17 years old, I will not become older than our father. And she committed suicide when she was 46, the same age when my father was hanged. Hmm. My next elder brother, Michael, was a really great-looking guy, very sportive, very funny guy, and he suddenly started to drink milk till 13 liters a day and became fatter and fatter and died of all what follows if you are too fat. And he also defended, he was alive when my book came out and he attacked me uh, in public. It sort of destroyed your family. Yes, for sure. What about forgiveness? There are many people who hear your story and the rage and the anger that you acknowledge you feel to this very day and they say there's something inhuman about it because humanity is full 
of the deepest failings and flaws. And in the end, part of humanity is to find forgiveness. I am an inhuman being. I will never forgive him. Looking around in Europe and also in the other countries of America and wherever, you find a lot of families my father has ruined, has killed a part of those families. And this is I can't forgive. Never. Do you ever wonder whether you might have had a, a, a better, happier, more positive life if you had found a different way to deal with what is, after all, your father's terrible crime, not yours? Yes, but um, it was these crimes, you can say it was my father, but the crimes are belonging in demolishing societies, in demolishing families, in killing innocent children. This is what, uh, it's more the victims, and it's not my father. My father did it, and my father gave all the signatures for death penalties and for all this kind of stuff. He was responsible by law, by the German law, he was the deputy of Hitler in Poland. So every death camp he was responsible for. The true power uh, was with Himmler, that's for sure, but he was responsible. For instance, it's with you talking to me, asking this question, as you can see maybe in the redness of mm. my face, that I become furious again because it's so unbelievable in which he was involved, in but, which but, he did actively. But the red cheeks and the fury that you feel, are they not allowing your father to define you? But you're define you exactly. To sh you are giving your father another form of enormous power. He wielded this terrible power over so many millions in Poland and still over you. You, I think, once called yourself a puppet on a string. Yes. Why don't you cut those strings? Don't allow your father, even in death, after so many years, to pull your strings. Too many victims. Too many victims. Let's not just talk about you, though. Let's talk about Germany. You introduced that topic early in this conversation, and I want to come back to it, because it does seem to me that you feel, and I think you used the word, fearful, still, yes, yes. of your own country and your own people. Yes. Today. Yes. 72 years after the liberation of Auschwitz. Yes. Why? You know my people not so as I know. I don't trust them because they, they were nobody talked inside the families. Uh, the normal German family never really talked about what their fathers and mothers or grandfathers or grandmothers have really seen, where they were cowards, where they were actively involved in the system. They were silent. And this is like a swamp. A swamp was never drained. So here and there in Germany, you find nowadays, and all the, the years I've lived till nowadays, you found those poisoned flowers coming out. And suddenly is a meadow full of those poisoned But that's flowers. that. When you say suddenly there is a meadow full of poisoned flowers, that's where I wonder 
whether that is fair. This interview is being filmed by three young German men, all in their 20s and their 30s. Why should they have to bear any sense of guilt or shame or no. responsibility? No. no guilt, no shame. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Really acknowledge. If you talk to these youngsters, really, in quiet hours, you will find out a lot of uncertainty, of uh, not really want to talk about it. There is some... No, because they say, why should we be taken on high school trips to Bergen-Belsen or Dachau? Why should we have to, as kids, be fed this, this sense of our collective responsibility? The responsibility is, is for me, it's a, it's a dead word. You have to know your history, the history of your people. It hurts to admit that there was a time in Germany where we left the family of people all around the world and we killed millions of innocent people in a system which was really a tough system. And to be against the system then has to have a very brave character to do it. But this hurt you can endure like I do it. And I still love Germany. I love being world champion in football, for instance. Really, I'm a nationalist, yes? And uh, I also laughed very much when Merkel said, we will do it with the refugees. Mm. Now she is. Everybody will be thrown out. That was a good thing. But also, as you can see, especially with Merkel and the refugees, everything changed because the silent majority, as if it were Jews again, ah, this swamp is coming. You really feel that? The you feel so insecure about your Germany today? Yes. Is this Don't trust us. And the special thing, I was very happy when the uh, European community, yes, suddenly we were watched with countries all around Germany. We have invaded them centuries before, sometimes or often. So that gave me a happy feeling. Now England is leaving, Poland is like a dictatorship, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Austria, Italy. Now, who is the strongest left? The Germans. Yes, but the Germans, as you paint it, the Germany today is a bulwark of, of moderation, of, of tolerance, compared to so yes. many messages coming from Hungary or from Marine Le Pen or from... So many people in as so many long, corners. As long as our economy is great, and as long as we made money, everything is very democratic. But let's wait and hopefully not see if we have five to ten years heavy economical problems. And the swamp is a lake, and it's a sea, and will swallow again everything. I swear it to you, Stephen, really. I don't trust them. It always makes me thinking and feeling exactly. Wait a minute, Nicholas, there's something else. You can lead a happy life, 
but there's something else around you. Uh, yeah, that makes it. It hurts, but on the other hand, because life is really stronger. Uh, it, I had really a happy life. Ask my grandchildren. Nicholas Frank, that is a nice way to end, but we must end. Thank you Thank for you being on Hard Talk. Thank you.